0: This is hell. Okie doke. And we're back. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. And after a two-week break following yet another surgery for your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live stream and podcast host Chuck Mertz, that's me, and there's no better way to return... With all new live shows Than by having as our guest today A listener favorite We start this week with the only guest Whose every interview on the show Has been chosen by you, the listening audience As one of your favorites of the year For five straight years And we would not be surprised If this will be the sixth That he will be honored by you, our listening audience we are very happy to have back on the show and featuring as our first guest back historian Gerald Horn, author of the new book Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. Gerald has been called one of the great historians of our time by Green Party presidential hopeful Cornell West. He is the John Jay and Rebecca Moores Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. Gerald examines U.S. history through a lens of settler colonialism, racial capitalism, white supremacy, and imperialism, and their genocidal impacts on Africans and indigenous Americans. Dr. Horn has written nearly 40 books dealing with the influence of African American history, communist history, the struggle for liberation, internationalism, imperialism, colonialism, racism, White supremacy and fascism Gerald has written biographies About the lives of W.E.B. Du Bois Tuskegee Airmen Benjamin Davis Jr. Communist Party USA leader William L. Patterson Blacklisted screenwriter John Howard Lawson And co-founder of the National Maritime Union Ferdinand Smith Among many others He has appeared on This Is Hell Every year since 2018 And as I was saying, Gerald is one of our listeners' Favorite guests as Every one of our interviews with him has been selected, chosen by you, to be replayed during our annual end-of-the-year Best of This Is Hell recap, which happens during the holiday season. On his most recent appearance, about a year ago to the day, he, we spoke with him about his then-just-published book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. In 2021, he was on to talk about his book... The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing, which is a fascinating book. Gerald's book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, on how the 1619 Project misses a century of earlier slavery in what is now the United States, also made our 2020 list of favorite interviews featured here on This Is Hell, as did his 2019 work, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. imperialism and anti-communism Versus the liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes To Mandela, which Was, just blew My mind, and his 2018 Writing, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy and Capitalism In 17th Century North America and the Caribbean also, was chosen as a listener fra- favorite. You can hear all of those interviews, and I suggest you do. Each and every one of them is mind blowing. You can hear all of them right now, absolutely free, by going to thisishell.com and searching on his last name, Horn, H O R N E. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Kat Jarvinin Kat, it's been a couple of weeks since we were in here together doing the show. Anything new by you?
1: I'm uh, not a whole lot new. Just had a nice weekend outside. Went to West Fest in Chicago and saw uh, Nitzer Ebb play for free. No kidding. Yeah, it was pretty nuts. It was very, very cool.
0: <laughs> were they playing at night? I hope.
1: Uh, yeah, they started at like nine o'clock. And so, so it was dark out. Where
0: was West Fest?
1: It's in West Town. Um, it's a big, it like, big street fair between, like, Damon and Chicago, I think.
0: No kidding? Yeah. Well, I've never heard of it, and I have friends of mine who live down on 22nd Place. That's pretty (laughs) funny that I've never heard of that. Uh, It looks like I'm going to be going to uh, Riot Fest. Really? Uh, Not because I want... uh, (laughs) I'm not buying tickets.
1: You're going to go crowd surfing, or...?
0: No, I'm going to be joining some friends of mine there, and... uh, I'll tell people more about that in a little while, but I'm i I'd be backstage at Riot Fest. Wow. So, Congratulations. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> uh, it's, it's just always weird when I'm in those kind of situations because it's just still me doing the exact same thing, which is getting drunk. So uh, it's not like anything really changes. It's just the scenery that does. Uh, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, as I was saying. But what's new by me is... I have had yet another surgery, making it six operations in the last 16 months. And fingers crossed this will be my last medical procedure related to the infection that nearly killed me 16 months ago. I was hoping there wouldn't be any complications with this most recent surgery, but of course there were. And the surgery, which was supposed to take three hours, ended up taking four and a half, close to five hours and the recovery has been far worse than it was i was told it would be so things are getting better i'm definitely and slowly improving and thanks to all of you for sending your get well wishes they are truly appreciated also my surgeon uh, said that, that their goal is to never be mentioned on a radio show called this is hell and let's all hope that is the only time I will ever mention my surgeon. Kat, the last time we did the show together two weeks ago, uh, we announced the question from hell. Whoever had the best response, as always, wins their choice of This Is Hell stuff, which you can see at thisishell.com when you click on support. But because of all sorts of complications and technical issues, we were not able to announce this uh, or the last winner for the question from hell. So Kat, what was the question from hell we asked listeners the day before my most recent surgery? And how did they respond on Patreon?
1: The question from Hell was, what superpower do you hope Chuck has after his surgery? And on Patreon, we had a couple of responses. Brenna H. said, I've been minding my own business about Chuck's situation and the treatment he's undergoing, but this question really has me wondering what the heck the surgeon is planning to do to him.
0: May <laughs> put me in pain. I got the superpower of feeling pain intensely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um... Jeff Dorchen says, laying golden eggs, lots and lots of solid 100% gold eggs, which he will slice up and give to his friends, family, and to the needy.
0: Why does that sound disgusting? I don't know. That sounds really gross. He's
1: slicing them so they're hard-boiled, I guess? Yes, that's a good
0: point. That's a very good point.
1: Um, Chris D. writes, able to withstand over 380 atmospheres of pressure and thrive under it. Wow.
0: (laughs) Call Um, back to the old submersible.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, Felipe C. says the ability to speak to fish So next time a rich people excursion Is lost <laughs> under the sea He can bribe the company <laughs> All right. Josh L. writes diplomatic immunity Sure Old Grouch says He will have the truth belt of Wonder Woman And will be able to get any lying right Bring S.O.B. to admit To their fundamental true selves That's worth living for, hey?
0: Yeah, I guess it is But then Wonder Woman wouldn't have her truth loop So there you go mm-hmm.
1: Nasrefej, which is Jefferson spelled backwards, <laughs> writes, the wolverine slash dead guy in pool healing power so he never gets sick again. It might double as a hangover cure, too. I
0: also like how my dyslexia really comes in handy with Nasrefej.
1: I know. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's what that says. Laddie writes, since, like me and Dorchen, he was dosed with PBB-laced milk in 1973, he already has one superpower. is totally fire retardant.
0: For a reference to that, you can watch the made-for-TV Ron Howard movie called Bitter Harvest. (laughs) It's actually a movie about that.
1: Wow, love a good made-for-TV movie.
0: Uh, Do you? Do you really? I really
1: do. (laughs) Uh, Bruce S. says the power of sophistry, namely, in order to divine greatness out of our current mediocre crop of world leaders.
0: I already have that ability.
1: Oh, well, what do you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was from the last surgery, I guess. Yeah. Any more? Uh, yeah, there's about five more. Okay. Essential says the magic to morph too many mighty Chuck Rangers or reassemble ad hoc. Sure. Addy writes the ability to warm up beverages such as coffee and tea using only his mind. <laughs> Aristides writes the power of love. Chuck will be able to sing the perfect cover of Huey Lewis's Power of Love Ugh. in a karaoke. Oof. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> Little Dippy dren- Dentist. Says Chuck will pull himself up by his own bootstraps. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, <laughs> that's a good one. Okay. And uh, the last one we have is uh, from Patreon. Braden writes, Eye lasers like Cyclops from X Men.
0: Oh, that's kind of cool. cool. You no, know, a friend of mine went to a Huey Lewis show and was thrown out because he was in the very front row right in front of Huey Lewis and he fell asleep and started snoring. <laughs> so they threw him out. Oh, no. <laughs> We will share your question from hell Answers as posted at Discord, Twitter, and Facebook Coming up after our talk with Gerald Horn on Washington, D.C.'s racist and racial history Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough To be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular Part of your weekly hangover cure This is Hell and Kat has this week's Hangover cure
1: This week's hangover cure is not Anti-hangover drinks Last week, techadvocate.org Ran an article headlined Debunking Anti-Hangover Drinks – The Real Solution to Hangovers The article states that according to CNET's recent health report on nutrition, anti-hangover drinks are not the cure we're searching for. Instead, the key lies in following practical steps to minimize hangover effects. However, no conclusive scientific evidence proves that these drinks significantly help with hangover symptoms. Anti-hangover drinks claim to cure or prevent the symptoms associated with hangovers by changing the way our body processes alcohol or replacing essential nutrients lost during alcohol consumption. Despite these claims, no conclusive scientific evidence proves that these drinks significantly help. Oh, that was a repeated sentence, yeah, I Yeah, I'm my, my mistake there. <laughs> That's okay. We must really know that they significantly do not help. They no, do I not help say. in any None. way.
0: <laughs> it's actually the article that keeps repeating itself, so mm-hmm. my, my mistake. I should have edited that up Ah, it's all good.
1: Um, the reality is that our bodies can only metabolize alcohol at certain at a certain rate, around one standard drink per hour. Thus, drinking excessive amounts of anti-hangover beverages cannot accelerate this process and prevent hangovers from occurring. Oh, they don't work. They don't work. <laughs> <laughs> While these anti-hangover drinks may sound like an attractive solution, it's essential to understand that these products are not a silver bullet for eliminating hangovers. Instead, following practical preventative measures like staying hydrated, moderating alcohol consumption, and getting adequate rest will help minimize the effects of hangovers. Ultimately, the most effective way to avoid a hangover is to drink responsibly and know your limits. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) <laughs> that makes this week's Hangover Cure not anti-hangover drinks.
0: Coming up, Washington, D.C. That's a multi, multi-million dollar industry, if not a billion <laughs> dollar industry at this point in time. So just stop buying those stupid anti-hangover drink cures. They, they don't work. Coming up, Washington, D.C.'s racial history is... Likely not what you think. Kat has the rest of your answers to our most recent question from How. We'll have the return of Dr. Sebastian Vupper, a historian himself by trade, who will give us another past inside the present when Seb gives us the historical context we need to better understand what is happening right now. Kat, what is Sebastian talking about this week?
1: Sub-returns to the Hawaiian Islands, sadly not in person To talk about how the Hawaiian Kingdom was overthrown And how the islands became a part of the United States
0: That's why he's been having all these this interest in the Hawaiian Islands It's because he just visited there Well, that's very cool We'll also tell you what we will be discussing on the rest of this week's show And who our guests will be Behind every great fortune lies a great crime Because this is hell And the great fortunes that have been made by the United States have been built not only on genocide and slavery, but also on exploitation and inequality that are uniquely American. Here to help us understand how that all played out in the capital of the United States, the very first chocolate city we are very happy to have back on the show, historian Gerald Horn, author of Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. Welcome back to This is Hell, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. It's always great to have you on the uh, show and it's always great to hear your voice. How are you doing?
2: Oh, you know, it could be worse.
0: <laughs> That's the best way to describe everything, I think You write that in Washington, D.C. in 1919 Carter G. Woodson, dubbed as the father of black history Thought he was about to make history in the worst way He was near Howard University, the historically black institution Within walking distance of the White House And then there, then, uh, there sped by him, he recalled A Negro yelling for mercy as he was pursued by hundreds of white soldiers Sailors and mariners, mariners uh, assisted by men Men in civilian attire. They collared the young man, then deliberately held him as one would a beef for slaughter. Then they shot him. The stunned historian scurried away furtively as fast as I could without running, is how he put it, while expecting every moment to be lynched myself. All academics did not react in Dr. Woodson's manner. A Howard professor, described as militant, built a barricade festooned with guns. He and his comrades then engaged in watchful waiting. As one writer put it, the professor, using a rowdy principle, had opened up a new and decent area for Negro habitation. Thousands of fine Negroes live there now as reform emerged from the barrel of a gun. At that time, what sparked that moment of violence? Were these completely random acts, or was racism always seething under the surface in Washington, D.C., and waiting for an excuse to unleash deadly racist violence?
2: It was more the latter. The immediate trigger were inflammatory reports in the Washington Post, then as now the leading publication in the nation's capital that suggested that uh, Black men were manhandling and roughhousing Euro-American women. And that was taking place against the backdrop of World War I, where the United States had been forced, as ever, to conscript Black men to go abroad to fight, fight purportedly for freedoms they did not enjoy. They came back, some of them trained in weapons, and unwilling to accept the racist status quo. Uh, That vignette involving Carter G. Whitson is the immediate paragraph that starts this book, Revolting Capital, which talks about uh, how Washington has been faced with this contradiction. That is to say, at the same time that the United States was purporting to be the paragon of human rights virtue, you saw that washington as your opening word suggested could fairly be characterized as chocolate city how was it that the capital of a white supremacist state came to have a black majority in order to understand that you have to understand slavery ending in the united states in 1865. keep in mind that during the bad old days of slavery washington dc rivaled New Orleans as a slave trading market. That too has a blemish on the reputation of the United States during the antebellum period. But the issue that I focus on heavily in the book at hand is the fact that when African and Caribbean nations began to surge to independence post-1945, post-World War II, Uh, Washington found itself in a contradiction as it was seeking to appeal to diplomats from these nations who, when arriving in Washington, oftentimes were treated like U.S. Negroes. A so-called reform was uh, devised whereby these diplomats would be given buttons to wear on their lapels to show that even though they were Black, they were not Black Americans. But obviously that did not fly, not least because uh, Black Americans could counterfeit Uh, these buttons. And so this creates a dynamic where Washington has to engage in a halting retreat from the more horrible aspects of Jim Crow. But at the same time, Jim Crow, of course, being U.S. apartheid, U.S. uh, racism by law. But obviously, this was disconcerting and angering to many who had grown comfortable and accustomed to U.S. Jim Crow, U.S. apartheid which creates even more problems. And then there's the other issue, which I talk about in in, in the introduction. Uh, Washington is probably the most heavily surveilled city in the United States, if not on planet earth. Not only do you have the metropolitan police, you have police departments across the river in Virginia, across the border in Maryland, you have secret service, you have FBI the federal reserve has been authorized to have its own police department you have park police etc and as a footnote that makes it all the more curious what happened on january 6 2021 when apparently flying under the radar were insurrectionists who were seeking to prevent the peaceful transfer of power and as many commentators suggested then and now uh, if that had been black people uh, seeking to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, where, first of all, it would have never happened, and second of all, there would have been uh, blood in the streets, uh, certainly more than you saw on January 6, 2021. And that brings me to the other aspect of Washington being the nation's capital. That is to say, I recount episodes where anti-war demonstrators clogged the streets of Washington, preventing Pentagon chiefs from motoring to the White House to devise bombing campaigns against Indochina and against Vietnam uh, some decades ago during the height of the war in Vietnam. And so Washington is not just another US city, it's a pivotal city, not least because it is where power is exercised. And also it has a intermittent black majority, which makes the rampages of gentrification in Washington, which is now unfolding, in some ways, a national security question.
0: Yeah, we had a really great discussion with uh, Tom Frank, Thomas Frank about that when his book uh, Wrecking Crew came out uh, several years ago. And that's fascinating. The, uh, 20, the late uh, 20th century, early 21st century history of gentrification in uh, Washington, D.C., which you touch on as well. But symbolically, when there was this kind of resistance, even armed resistance to white violence in Washington, D.C., did this mean for the greater United States, uh, when there's this, you know, when black Americans in the nation's capital were standing up against white violence with violence of their own, did that lead to blowback nationally? Did that kind of moment in history make the rest of the United States, you know, we we know about what happened in Tulsa. We know about what happened in the early 20th century with so many attacks on uh, economically and financially successful uh, black communities. So, did this have a link to did the uh, violence, the anti or the, the violence against the white violence, did that have any impact on the United States nationally? Did that lead to more of a blowback against African Americans across the country?
2: Well, it's a mixed bag. First of all, let's look at the question of gun control. Uh, given the fact that gun control is basically a dead letter, despite all of these massacres that take place, for example, in Buffalo, New York, Valde, Texas, et cetera, you had bipartisan effort towards gun control in the late 1960s, not least because you had the arising of the Black Panther Party Started uh, in a sense in Oakland, California, but of course, having a militant chapter in Washington, D.C., uh, part of their mantra was confronting the police, oftentimes with arms in hand. Uh, you may recall that it was on May 2nd, 1967, that the newly formed Black Panther Party invaded the state capitol in Sacramento, California. And that too led to gun control efforts, indeed led by then California governor, Ronald Wilson Reagan, who then subsequently became a staunch opponent of gun control. So I would say that on the one hand, the fact that you had these black people arming was seen as a cautionary note by many of the rulers of the United States, perhaps making some more prone to push reform, not only with regard to uh, gun control, but with regard to other measures. For example, that's the heyday of affirmative action uh, recently given as death blow by the U.S. Supreme Court just a few days ago. At the same time, there are panthers still in prison to this very day as a result of their armed confrontation with the state. Uh, there are panthers buried in graveyards too numerous to mention not only Panthers, but Panther supporters because of their armed confrontation with the state. So, uh, in sum, I would say it's a mixed bag. So, let me get back to that just for a second. So, how necessary and important
0: was violence in the early days of Washington, D.C.'s struggle for black liberation? How important was it to have a violent reaction in order to continue any project for black liberation?
2: I would say it's one factor amongst many. I would say the leading factor in helping to explicate the agonizing retreat from the more hard aspects of Jim Crow is the international situation. What I just mentioned with reference to uh, helping to appeal to African and Caribbean diplomats in a Cold War context with the then Soviet Union and the United States feeling it would be disadvantaged as a result, that sets the stage. Because keep in mind, that if an alien arrives from outer space and studies the history of the United States, that alien may look back at the bloodstained history of the United States. Uh, For example, peaceful protesters being mowed down in the streets, like they are some sort of wild animals in the first part of the 20th century. And then you have the march on Washington of 1963 when 250,000 amass uh, peacefully. Uh, which leads directly to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which supposedly was designed, among other things, to make sure that Black patrons could visit restaurants and hotels. Now, in light of the recent Supreme Court decision, once again, out of Colorado, where a web designer is not obligated to accept the business of a gay couple, Uh, lawyers, including myself, have raised the possibility that on that premise, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, or at least that portion I just rendered, could be ruled unconstitutional. Now, I think that that's a stretch, but uh, who knows, given the nature of this U.S. Supreme Court. So I, I would say in sum that violence is a factor, but I think it would be reductionist to say it's the sole and exclusive factor in explaining reform. And you
0: mentioned that speaking from Kansas City, John Bruce found the real cause of these outbreaks in early 20th century Washington, D.C., was the unusually large number of Negroes in public office. In a city that would deliver a black majority shortly, these well-dressed, well-housed, educated Negroes were frequently seen in automobiles on Pennsylvania Avenue, a central artery. In some, there was a peculiar mixture of racism and class resentment with Dr. Woodson as an ostensible target. Is... Because you know there's always this binary of race or class and I know that every binary has a shortcoming is a class war then a race war in the United States and vice versa and are both white based class and race violence resentment against democracy are these fights against democracy and possibly even in support of authoritarianism dictatorship or even fascism
2: Well, I think you're onto something. In fact, as you know more than most, that was the import of the book we discussed on this about a year ago on my book on Texas slavery and Jim Crow and the roots of US fascism. The only footnote that I would add is that I think that there has been a mischaracterization with regard to what has been called the race question, at least as it pertains to African-Americans because slavery was the ultimate class question. That is to say, you have a class of unpaid workers. And I think that part of the mistake that has been made even by radicals in this country is a failure to acknowledge that fundamental point, which then leads them to misunderstand why there have been fissures in the working class as a whole. The fissures have been characterized as race fissures, that is to say, why is it that uh, poor coal miners in Kentucky oftentimes do not want to join hands with uh, black proletarians in Chicago? But it actually, in a sense, goes back to the 19th century when there was a difficulty in workers to receive wages joining hands with workers who did not receive wages. What that also suggests is that when the workers who did not receive wages were able to break the chains break the shackles of slavery happening in Haiti circa 1804 in the United States 1865 this uplifts the working class as a whole and that is a point of history that I would hope our radicals and even liberals could begin to focus on
0: you mention a businessman named George Calavatino's, who uh, was speaking to Congress, and he told them that he exhorted that since 1776, the nation had never been faced with a more critical situation as we are confronted with today. This is in 1960s Washington, D.C. Born in the District of Columbia in 1921, he acknowledged freely that what I am called is a slumlord, and presumably from his tenants he learned that planned guerrilla warfare is now in our land, with key activists following the same tactics as Fidel Castro. In fact, he claimed many of these punks were Taught by the Cuban leader, his temper flaring, he challenged the many who say dictatorship is not the answer. Well, he clucked, I say we could use some now. According to Nile University in Egyptian research and entrepreneurial school, fascism is a mass political movement that emphasizes extreme nationalism and militarism, while dictatorship is a form of government where the leader of the country possesses absolute power is the goal then of white supremacists and those who oppose black liberation dictatorship as those businessmen kalavitinos suggested or do, do you think it is fascism as so many
2: critics on the left have claimed and does it make a difference it probably doesn't make a difference particularly to the ultimate victims who i would characterize as being black people or those who may be sympathetic to black people and i add the latter because recall that in my Texas book, I point out that also subject to being pulverized in Texas post abolition of slavery were those Euro-Americans who were seen as overly sympathetic to black people. In fact, if you look at the cover of my book, it's a picture of a mass hanging of white men uh, who were perceived as overly sympathetic uh, to uh, the newly uh, freed enslaved. Now, I should also add that if you look at the New York Times today, there's an op-ed, actually by University of Chicago law professor Sonia Starr, who says that the next stage for the right wing after overthrowing affirmative action is to get rid of diversity, irrespective of whether or not their qualifications. That is to say, uh, even if um, you have a uh, prize winning black astrophysicist, wants to apply to the University of Chicago, uh, but uh, he could be turned down. In other words, it would be a great leap backwards to the battle days of Jim Crow, w- w- which meant no matter how qualified, quote unquote, you were, uh, you could be turned down. And of course, there was an attempt to keep you from being qualified, but making sure you went to inferior uh, schools. Washington, D.C., has been an exemplar of this trend that I'm talking about because keep in mind that Washington DC was formed as a compromise with the slave owning states. Recall that George Washington, after he was elected, uh, he was ruling from Philadelphia, he was ruling from New York and finally the slave owning leaders wanted a capital, that was in their jurisdiction so washington dc borders virginia the premier slave-owning state and it also borders maryland which also was a slave-owning state and during the 20th century as i described in the book washington dc was uh, weighed down not only by the kinds of uh, elites that you just described in that quote But look at the football team. Sports oftentimes is a useful prism through which to view and analyze U.S. society. Note that until a year or two ago, the Washington football team, well, I'm reluctant to mention the word, but for educational purposes, I will. It was the Washington Redskins, which of course is a a disgusting nickname for a professional team. For a good deal of its history, the Washington so-called Redskins were owned by George Preston Marshall, who was one of the last pro football franchise owners to move towards desegregation, that is to say, accepting black football players in a league which is now about 70% black. So obviously uh, he was consigning his team to not doing well on the gridiron, which obviously once again, it helps to contradict some of our friends over at the University of Chicago who suggest that the lure of the dollar and the lure of profit and the desire to have a number one football team whereby you would make more money uh, would not make this effort towards segregation by George Preston Marshall possible. But obviously he he put certain values above the value of making money. This was happening in the nation's capital, the nation's front yard, at a time when Washington was preening on the global stage as the paragon of human rights liberty, Obviously, something had to give, and eventually something did give. That is to say, the agonizing and reluctant retreat from the more horrible aspects of U.S. apartheid.
0: And we were very honored to have Vernon Belcourt on our show of the American Indian Movement, who was part of the campaign, or the leader of the campaign, to get rid of the racist names that we did find in uh, with sports teams. So earlier you likened the U.S. Uh, American institutions to those of... Apartheid. Uh, But apartheid is a system. I'm I'm sure that people are going to be, you know, people may have stumbled on the show or whatever. Uh, They will probably saying apartheid is a system of minority rule. So how can apartheid exist in a country where the population overall is not that of a white minority? Is apartheid in the U.S. localized in its urban centers?
2: Well, recall our discussion a few years ago when I was discussing on these airwaves, my book, White Supremacy Confronted, which has a detailed analysis of apartheid in South Africa. Recall that when apartheid was enacted in 1948, it was enacted in no small measure in order to protect the so-called white working class from competition from the Black working class. It was designed to uplift the former, as it drove the latter into the dust. If you look at this recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court gutting affirmative action amongst others, fundamentally, you can expect that decision to migrate to the workplace. And that will serve to reinforce racial privilege, white racial privilege in the first place, uh, giving white applicants a leg up in terms of any competition with uh, non-white applicants, which is one of the reasons I suspect the decision has been so popular in diverse circles. Likewise, I don't think you can understand U.S. Jim Crow nor South African apartheid without understanding the concept of white supremacy, of which white racial privilege is just an aspect. Indeed, what I argued in that earlier book was that in some ways the United States outstripped apartheid South Africa because in apartheid South Africa, which was a regime that touted white supremacy, that was really a cover for Afrikaner supremacy, Afrikaners being the descendants of the original Dutch settlers with an infusion of French Protestantism in the late uh, 17th century. They were heavily anti-Semitic, united states there has been much more of a synthetic version of whiteness to be sure there is anti-jewish fervor in the united states but i think it's also fair to say as the governor of illinois could well attest that uh, the united states has gone the extra mile in combating uh, anti-semitism Unlike uh, apartheid South Africa, which is one of the reasons why the regime began to crumble, because it turns out that many of the leaders of the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa happened to be Jewish, like Joe Slovo, who was head of the armed wing of Nelson Mandela's African National Congress, for example. So the comparison between South African apartheid and U.S. Jim Crow is entirely opposite.
0: All right. Then you also write it was in the late 1940s that the celebrated Howard University sociologist E. Franklin Frazier was made aware of the unavoidable as Washington became not only a global but hemispheric capital. The ingrained apartheid policies were out uh, there outraged numerous foreign visitors at, at a time when the U.S. was seeking to win hearts and minds abroad, as you were mentioning earlier. Ethiopians uh, would uh, found it next to impossible to book a room at a white hotel, while one enraged South Asian proclaimed... I would rather be an untouchable in the Hindu caste system than a Negro here. By your assessment, is that hyperbole? How can being black in America be worse than being part of a caste system? Is racism in the U.S. uniquely cruel and brutal, and is it recognized as it recognizes such around the world?
2: Well, the short answer is that it was recognized in diverse circles around the world as being a particularly horrid form of socioeconomic organizing. It's oftentimes difficult to compare horrible aspects of diverse societies, like comparing the system of untouchables in South Asia and the system of Jim Crow in the United States of America. But I will say this you know that I did a book on Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, which had a system of apartheid not dissimilar from that in South Africa. The white leaders in Rhodesia oftentimes clucked their tongues when espying lynching in the United States of America. Lynching is a horrible phenomenon that is something that even the races in Southern Africa uh, found uh, quite uh, befuddling. Uh, That is to say, the execution of black men and women uh, with no due process of law. Uh, There is a particularly hard case about a century ago in Georgia where a pregnant black woman is lynched and then the lynchers uh, carve her womb take out the fetus and stomp the fetus to death. Uh, This sort of horrible excess has been virtually unique to the United States of America, which makes it possible to suggest if there is an Olympics of racism and an Olympics of horrors, the United States could well be awarded the gold medal.
0: We are speaking with historian Gerald Horn. His new book is Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, DC, nineteen hundred to two thousand, and we will have an autographed copy of his book as part of our raffle coming up as a prize during our raffle at our this is how Hell- Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party Happening on Saturday, July 22nd So you write, eventually Washington's rulers sought to pivot away From horrendousness, as described by the city's Doyenne, Mary Church Terrell She said, Indians, Japanese, Chinese, Filipinos And representatives of other dark races Can find hotel accommodations as a rule If they pay for them The colored man or woman is the only one Thrust out of the hotels of the national capital Like a leper. So, in a 2016 Smithsonian article, it states that on February 28, 1950, 86 year old Mary Church Terrell invited her friends, two black, one white, with her at Thompson's, a local cafeteria. The four entered, took their trays, and proceeded down the counter line. The manager told the group that the diner's policy forbade him from serving them. They demanded to know why they couldn't have lunch, and the manager responded that it was not his personal policy, but Thompson Companies, which refused to serve African Americans. The group left as chairwoman of the Coordinating Committee for the Enforcement of the District of Columbia Anti-Discrimination Laws. Terrell was setting up a test case to force the courts to rule on two lost laws that demanded all restaurants and publics eating places in Washington serve any well-mannered citizen, regardless of their skin color. Over three drawn-out years, a legal battle followed, which ultimately took their case all the way to the America's highest court. This is five years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus, 10 years before the Woolworth sit-ins in Greensboro. Did actions in Washington, D.C., during the very early stages of the civil rights movement, not only predate but influence actions around the United States. And, and why do we know about Rosa Parks and Woolworths, but not as much about Terrell?
2: Well, the short answer is yes. What happened on the national stage in Washington uh, did predate and to a certain extent shape and influence subsequent events, not least the demonstrations in Montgomery, Alabama, of which uh, Rosa Parks has become the leading symbol, that is to say the desegregation of, busing, of buses. But there is a point that you mentioned earlier that bears reflection. And that goes back to my earlier point where I think that the radicals and certainly the liberals have made a mistake by not looking at slavery being at root a class question. Mary Church Terrell in that quote talks about how at a certain point in Washington's evolution, uh, South Asians and Japanese and Chinese could be uh, patronized in hotels and restaurants, but not black Americans. As I said before, Washington was scrambling to make exceptions for Nigerian and Jamaican diplomats and to a certain extent, students who were attending Howard, Universities, Howard University on the hilltop in Washington, DC, but not for black Americans. I don't think you can begin to expect. Explain this contradiction without understanding something that I thread throughout this book, Revolting Capital, which is that when slavery was abolished in 1865 or thereabouts, the slave owners were not compensated. Now we talk about reparations for enslavement today. Evanston, Illinois, in your backyard has moved in that direction. There is a parallel attempt in the state of California. But uh, we rarely discuss, uh, to the chagrin and consternation of the descendants of slave owners, the fact that their property in human beings was taken without compensation. This helped to generate enormous uh, cyclonic antagonism and resentment towards Black people generally, making it possible to explain The persecution of black people as being a reaction to having your property taken without compensation. Oftentimes when I explain this in classrooms, you know how classrooms nowadays are. uh, Students, as you're lecturing or fiddling with their smartphones, and I will go up to a student and snatch the smartphone out of their hand and say, this is what I'm talking about. I'm expropriating your property without compensation. You're angry, aren't you? You probably want to take me outside and give me a good dusting, don't you? Well, that's basically the scenario, not least in Washington DC, but I would argue throughout Dixie post-1865. It's a problem we still face today. I mean, look at this affirmative action decision. Uh, Even though it was portrayed as being solely and exclusively a Black program, everybody knows that with regard to affirmative action, non-minority women are probably the most significant beneficiary, but they hardly entered into the discussion because of this fixation, if not obsession, about Black people, which I would argue not only stems from the usual tropes we hear about, this, this revulsion towards darker skin, but also to the class question. You have property taken in the billions, without compensation, plunging many families into poverty, generating resentment Anger, fury.
0: Is that resentment, anger, and fury also aimed at the military-industrial complex? Because you write that the black Washington vicinity was a direct victim of U.S. imperialism, and not only in terms of tax dollars wasted on a failed regime in Tehran or on military spending generally. Queen City was a neighborhood of about 150 black American families founded in the 1880s that was disassembled so that the behemoth known as the Pentagon... Citadel of U.S. imperialism could be constructed. I don't think that many people know that that was due to a racial cleansing, if you will, of the uh, Washington, D.C. area. That's why the Pentagon is where it is. Within the black liberation movement, historically, how much has the military budget been viewed as a part of some sort of zero-sum game when it comes to resources that might mitigate inequality, that increased military spending means worse living conditions, infrastructure, and greater inequality for Black Americans. How much is this viewed as a zero-sum game?
2: I'm glad you raised that question because at the end of the month, we'll have the, uh, the meeting of the NAACP, the convention, taking place in Boston. In 1950, at the NAACP convention in Boston, you had a systematic purge of any to the left of liberalism. In the first place, that meant people who were sympathetic to the late, great Paul Robeson, actor, activist, socialist. Since that time, you've had a de facto political ecosystem in the United States, whereby liberal forces, like the leaders of the NAACP, refused to acknowledge allies on the left whereas their right-wing counterparts refuse to see enemies to their right. That helps to explain not only why there is so much sympathy amongst the leading Republican Party presidential candidates for the insurrectionists of January 6th, but it also sheds light on why there have been so many setbacks for these movements led by liberals. Because, for example, they refuse to make a major issue of the military industrial complex. In fact, the NAACP leaders uh, by and large supported the war in Vietnam uh, in the 1960s and 1970s. They're quiet as church mice about the hundreds of US bases, military bases abroad. You have left wing forces, forces to the left of the NAACP leadership who launched a campaign called Move the Money, whereby they wanna move money from the Pentagon into education and healthcare. The NAACP once again, has been absent from that fight. But once again, it's not accidental. You can trace it all back to 1950, this NAACP convention in Boston, Massachusetts. Once again, at the end of July, 2023, there'll be an NAACP convention in Boston, Massachusetts. Once again, we expect many of our friends to the left of liberal to raise these questions. But sadly, once again, I don't expect in 2023, at least, that they'll gain much traction.
0: So do you think the NAACP then is more of a race project or a class project? Or again, is that binary? Uh, Does that have some sort of shortcomings?
2: Well, I think they're both, but I think that they're failing on both fronts. I mean, (laughs) they're they're a class project insofar as they're oftentimes in alliance with the AFL-CIO, which, by the way, endured a similar purge of those to the left of liberal in the 1950s. The NAACP represents a mostly working class constituency. Black Americans are overwhelmingly and predominantly workers who sell their labor for a wage in order to maintain housing and have food on the table. But it's a race project insofar as, for example, when I was doing research just a few days ago uh, in Boston, and I would walk into, actually this was Cambridge, adjoining Boston, and I would walk into Enterprises, uh, even a bookstore that had a Black Lives Matter sign on the window. And when I walked in, you would think that I was an alien visiting from outer space. And this is Cambridge, liberal town, Black Lives Matter uh, sign in the window. And it's not necessarily because I have gray hair. It's not necessarily because I'm a professor and therefore there's class resentment because they didn't know who I was. It was because of the color of my skin. So to that extent, the NAACP, when they campaign against such excesses and outrages, they're also pursuing a race project. So they're pursuing both. But not pursuing either very well.
0: You also mentioned, you were talking about earlier, the impact that national lawmakers have on local policies within Washington, D.C., and you point out that Dix- Dixie often sent to the district the most hardened white supremacists to the detriment of local residents. Would more democratic control, less influenced by national politicians on D.C.'s metropolitan policies, necessarily mean less of a police state in D.C. Do national politicians insist they bring their race and class based
2: police state with them from their home states? Well, it's hard to say at this point. I think it would have made a a big difference some decades ago when you had the likes of Senator Theodore Bilbo of Mississippi, who was head and shoulders above the rest in terms of uh, spouting and exemplifying white supremacy. Uh, Congress put him in the position of being the de facto mayor because uh, until quite recently in recent years have you had the move towards home rule where Washington have its own elected mayor. Uh, today, uh, given the fact that Washington has advanced pretty far down the road compared to 1947, for example, when it comes to anti racism. I'm not sure if having more home rule in Washington is gonna have that much of an impact on national politics. Although I am wholly in favor of more home rule for Washington up to and including the current demand in Washington that Washington be a state with two US senators that could tip the balance against the right wing, which is one of the reasons why it's gonna be difficult to uh, get that uh, legislation or even constitutional amendment passed. And as well, it could mean that the possibility of more of these right-wing Supreme Court justices like Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh could be confirmed. If you had two US senators from the Commonwealth of Douglas or the Douglas Commonwealth, the new DC, Frederick Douglass, of course, being the man we're referring to, the great 19th century abolitionist who spent his waning years in Washington, D.C.
0: You also mentioned the Red Scare of the post-war era, writing that by 1947, as the Red Scare was heating up and the Communist Party had yet to be weakened profoundly, Communists and their allies were in support of a 50-building strike at the heart of power by these workers, which, according to scholar Mary Elizabeth Harding, was possibly the only example of an all-African-American union that supported the refusal of the leadership of the local to sign the non-communist affidavits and remained on strike for over two months until the issue was resolved. And in a, a signal development... That pretended the weakening of both unions and the Communist Party, the NAACP, declined to become active in the Citizens Support Committee in support of the cafeteria workers who are striking. So some critics are arguing that in the recent Greek elections at the end of last month that ended in a right-wing landslide, that was partly due to the more left-wing party's unwillingness to embrace a stronger class politics. How potent is Red Scare politics to this day, leading liberal and even leftists to not embrace class politics, and in doing so, handing elections to those with conservative class politics. Is the opposition to conservatism unwilling to have class politics and giving elections to conservatives in doing so?
2: Well, I think you're onto something, but I think we need to understand this phenomenon. I mean, for example, the NAACP would find it difficult to have any sort of conversations or discussions with me, even though in the academic community, uh, even in the wider Black community, I'm viewed as a person who can contribute value to political discussions. But it's not only because of their encrusted anti-communism and anti-socialism, it's also because they feel that their donations would dip if they began to consort with those like myself. In other words, yes, you are correct. Uh, Anti-class politics, uh, anti-communism is still a reigning factor in US politics. It helps to explain the ascendancy of the right wing. It helps to shed light on why the 45th US president might very well become the 47th US president in January 2025 not least because our friends who are liberals oftentimes will be reluctant, to put it mildly, to see allies and friends and comrades to their left, which weakens their overall project. But it has the advantage of making sure that they control the reins of power, because if they were to move away from that cockeyed uh, system that I've just explained, a person like myself might hold the reins of power, and they don't want that to happen. It would not be in their self-interest, narrowly speaking.
0: So is the NAACP's anti-communist stance then one of survival? Would there not be an NAACP if they did not sign the, affidav- sign the affidavit that said that they would not support communism?
2: Well, I think you're onto something. I think there's the dilemma. The The fact is the NAACP is the longest, and most enduring civil rights organization because it's bent to political winds. It's bit bent to hurricane force-like winds and currents. But the price that has been paid for that, quote, flexibility, unquote, has been ineptitude, has been ineffectiveness, raising questions as to whether or not the community they were sworn to defend would have been better served if they had pursued a different ideological approach. But there again, you have the problem. If they had pursued a different ideological approach, perhaps they would not be around to hold their convention in Boston at the end of the month.
0: You mentioned the reparations program in Evanston, and I don't want to speak about that specifically, but I wanted to ask you a more general question. Can reparations be means-based. We just had the whole student debt debacle that just happened with a lot of people arguing we cannot have universal st- student debt, uh, if, You know, uh, allowing for people not to pay back their student debts. We can't have a universal program like that because then rich people are going to take advantage of it. Why should I pay for a millionaire's student loan debts? So, In the same uh, vein, when it comes to means-based reparations, can there be means-based reparations, or do they
2: need to be universal? I think it needs to be universal, because I think that the calculation is that if you have means-based, for example, if you had means-based Social Security, saying that people who have uh, annual incomes over six figures, or lo and behold, seven figures, should be excluded from Social Security, that weakens the politics, that weakens the political support, and we always, contrary to popular opinion, have to take into account that the United States has a powerful and potent right-wing force, and you cross that right-wing force or contradict that right-wing force or disregard that right-wing force at your own peril. So reparations faces a stiff a stiff and steep uphill climb as it is, saying that it's going to be means-based and therefore excluding the, you know, the handful of black professors at Northwestern University, for example, would probably be driving a stake through its heart and therefore would be politically unwise.
0: We have been speaking with historian Gerald Horn, whose new book is entitled Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. You can find all five of our past interviews with Gerald at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his name, Horn, H O R N E, and they are all absolutely free. As you know, our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, and I'm going to hate asking this question. You may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Oh, Gerald, I'm going to hate asking this. Is Black liberation communist?
2: <laughs> well, in part, insofar as there have been leading communists in the forefront of the Black liberation movement. Uh, you mentioned my biography of Ben Davis, this is the Black communist leader as opposed to the Tuskegee Airman. Uh, he was elected to New York City Council in 1943 reelected in 1945 before falling victim to the Red Scare circa 1949 and jailed by 1951. So he was a leader of, of the Black community. Uh, insofar as Black liberation involves class politics, involves the redistribution of wealth per reparations, to that extent, it could be characterized as, quote, socialist or communist. But by and large, I think it's an era to slap that label on the Black liberation movement Because there are many people in the movement who are liberal. There are many people in the movement who are moderate. And in any case, slapping that label on the entire movement is a way to carry favor with the powerful anti-communist forces who mean ill for the Black liberation movement in general.
0: Gerald, it is always a distinct pleasure to have a conversation with you. Thank you so much for all of your support. Thank you for coming on our show every year since 2018. We really appreciate it and uh, look forward to having you. Oh, wait, I know you're working on a new book. You're always working on a new book. What's your new book about?
2: Next year, armed struggle, question mark, Panthers, communists, Black Nationalism and Black Liberals in Southern California through the 1960s. So
0: should Governor DeSantis be be working on censoring your book already?
2: I'm sure he is. (laughs)
0: All right. Gerald, it's always great to hear your voice. Thank you so much for being on the air. And uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Good luck. Take care. This is not the media. This is hell. Man, I love speaking with that guy. And you know this is not the media That is the corporate establishment media, whether publicly or privately owned, because you will not hear Gerald's brutally honest and accurate take on U.S. history, which challenges the myths of exceptionalism and innocence, that we are all indoctrinated into believing, maybe even groomed, myths that are constantly reinforced every day by corporate and state propaganda. If you enjoyed our conversation with Gerald, show your appreciation for This Is Hell, providing nearly 27 years of content that you cannot get anywhere else, giving airtime to opinions and perspectives you won't hear anywhere else, and providing that content to you. Absolutely free since 1996 Including nearly 10 years of free shows That you can find at thisishell.com right now Show your appreciation for all that By becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast Which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell Every Thursday morning around 10 a.m. Chicago time Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support You also know this is not the media Because name another media outlet Another radio show, another live stream, another podcast that actually throws a party for you every freaking year. Join us for the upcoming This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party and art opening of This Is Art on Saturday, July 22nd, beginning when doors open at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, between Oakley and Bell. Meet past guests, see old friends, make new ones, join with others who listen to the show as we celebrate yet another year on air. There will also be live music, good food, and a raffle of really amazing This Is Hell-related gifts. Real quick hat tip to the great people over at Mars Brewing and WLPN Lumpin' Radio. We will also have brand new This Is Hell swag that will be available and will be part of the raffle as well. Stay tuned in over the next couple of weeks as we share more details. Cat, what was our most recent question from hell? And how have listeners answered on Discord, Twitter, and Facebook?
1: The most recent question from Hell was, what superpower do you hope Chuck has after his surgery? On Discord, Kim G says, flora power. Okay. (laughs) Cam says, the ability to talk to animals so we can finally find out what's up with these things. I want a Mel interview. (laughs) (laughs) Who said that? Uh, Cam. Okay, Cam. C-A-M. (laughs) <laughs> Urodov says wizard eyes, improvise, er, improved vision, but only into the subtle realm.
0: Yeah, but oh. I need to have the disability in order to get certain perks. But also, I wouldn't mind the lack of discrimination.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, hard, hard, hard choice. Hard there. choice there. <laughs> um, EXC0422 says, Due to objects left behind by the surgical team during the course of the procedure, Chuck will awaken from his anesthesia as Edward's scalpel hands.
0: <laughs> Gross.
1: Um, so those were Discord. This is now on Twitter. Yesayas says, The power to read books and articles in his sleep so we can continue his streak of great interviews. And, Get well soon, Chuck.
0: And ruin my sleep, by the way.
1: Oh, <laughs> <Wait, wait. laughs> uh, Dean T., writes the ability to convince everyone that less is more thereby solving the worldwide problem of ecological overshoot excellent on facebook we have margie saying perfect health Hmm. john t writes the ability to transmit radio without external equipment same as bionic bigfoot
3: (laughs) i see don't
1: know what
0: (laughs) bionic bigfoot
1: I don't know who. What is? I think that's a
0: reference to a Six Million Dollar Man episode, maybe. I have no idea. Good Uh, lord! The fact that I know that is sad. (laughs) That's the superpower I want to not remember any Six Million Dollar Man episode.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Tom uh, W says anarchism. (laughs) Ray O writes super immunity. Kelly H says I read Ray O's answer as well as, as super immaturity if that tells you anything about where my head is at.
0: Or what Kelly H knows about me.
1: Mm-hmm. Ronaldo Migaldi says 2020 vision. <laughs> Pete writes, a giant pile of money. That's a superpower, isn't it?
0: Yes, and a winning lottery ticket is as well.
1: S O S says the ability to psychically torment billionaires, Henry Kissinger, and other fash into repentance. Go, Chuck.
0: Essel, thank you so much for all of your kind words that you keep sending me, and it makes me feel really great every time I get a message from you. Any more?
1: Uh, there are two more. We have Matt L writes extra limbs, <laughs> and Fabio AJL writes the ability to not miss his button.
0: If I had extra limbs, I mean, I can can hardly control the four I have. One of them is pretty shot right now. The old one's almost done. So, yeah, I got a lot of whole bunch of issues there. I'm going to select this week's question from Hellwinner. Cam, I'm going with you simply because you mentioned that we should do an interview with Mel. I should have the superpower abilities to have an interview with Mel. I often have interviews with Mel. They go like Mel saying something to me like meow and then me in translating that for other people around me. And you wouldn't believe how offensive Mel is He's a very offensive guy He's got a lot of hate in that little body So, uh, coming up, The Past Inside the Present With historian Sebastian vooper Kat will have more of your Or not more of your answers She will be announcing this week's question from hell For you, our listening audience And we will be telling you what's happening The rest of this week here on This Is Hell The future ain't what it used to be And neither is our past This is hell Take it away, Sebastian
3: The past inside the present. Why am I (laughs) muted (laughs) anyway? I fixed my internet. Hey, you can hit your button way better than I I can. I, I hit my I hit my button now, now I'm back. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, from the top. <clears throat> One, two. This week I am once more returning to the Hawaiian Islands, the history of which we left somewhat unfinished. So, yes, we are this week returning to the 50th state, the 5-0, as probably no actual Hawaiian calls it. How did Hawaii end up being a state? It's pretty far removed from the continental United States, uh, a five-hour flight across the ocean blue from LAX these days. The last time I talked about the history of the Hawaiian Islands, they were still the Hawaiian Kingdom, with a series of kings all called Kamehameha from the House of Kamehameha, which is the reason why there are so many Kamehameha roads, avenues, and highways over there. As the 19th century progressed, an increasing number of foreigners tried to get their hands on Hawaiian lands. The islands being volcanic meant that they had incredibly fertile soils, and due to the tropical climate, crops can grow year-round. One of the issues that the Hawaiian kingdom ran into was that all these Europeans and Americans who came to the islands to grab land introduced the concept of exclusive land ownership to a people who had never heard of such a thing before. And you have to admit, it is kind of a silly concept if you think about it. So in order to keep these pesky land grabbers away, the American-born first chief justice of the Hawaiian kingdom, a man by the name of William Little Lee, convinced the king to divvy up the lands and give the Hawaiian people legal titles to them so that the foreigners couldn't just waltz in and declare the lands their own because they were just the first people to do so. But the way that system was set up only made land grabbing easier, actually, because the Hawaiian people were, as I said, not really on the same page as everyone else when it came to the whole concept of owning land legally. Another problem was that the American Chief Justice uh, himself was emblematic of a larger issue. Because the Hawaiian Islands had not had any contact with the wild world of European and American legal systems before, the kings brought in outsiders as advisors to help the kingdom interact on as equal a footing as possible with the outside forces now trying to take over their lands. But those advisors seldom acted without ulterior motives. And so, against all attempts at the contrary, a large share of Hawaiian prime lands ended up in the hands of white planters from the United States and other places around the world outside of the Hawaiian Islands. Sugar cane became the main export of the islands pretty quickly. And as we all know, sugar is an extremely work-intensive crop. And the Hawaiian Islands didn't quite have the workforce to feed the sugar plantations that cropped up on all islands over the course of the 19th century. But, well, it was the 19th century, so the planters were in a bit of bit of a pickle there because the African slave trade was no longer really the cool thing to do. So the planters instead imported workers from other places. First, about 50,000 Chinese workers were brought to the islands between 1852 and 1887. But since the planters were suspicious of having that many workers who were all one homogeneous mass under them, they decided to import people from other places as well, so that workers would not have such an easy time organizing. The next wave of workers came from Japan and then followed a wave of workers from Korea, and then in the 20th century, um, also a bunch of Filipinos were brought in to work on the sugar plantations. And these plantation owners became extremely filthy rich from their operations and eventually consolidated into five corporations that ran most of the island's sugar planting and processing businesses. These big five, as they were as they became known, uh, then also wanted to have a say in the way that Hawaii was run politically pressured by the planters who the Hawaiian King David Kalakaua negotiated the reciprocity treaty with the United States that allowed importing Hawaiian sugars to the continental US without an import duty in 1875. But wait, you say David King David Kalakaua. That's that's right. That's not a Kamehameha. Uh, The direct line had ended when King Kamehameha V died in 1872 without leaving any heirs. After that, the Hawaiian legislature uh, elected their next king, Lunalilo, who was very popular and tried making Hawaii more democratic. But Lunalilo died only two years after ascending the throne, again without leaving any heirs. And again, the legislature voted, this time for David Kalakaua, uh, who who would succeed King Lunalilo. Uh, But Lunalilo had appointed an American financier and businessman, um, a guy by the name of Charles Reed Bishop, to the post of Minister of Foreign Affairs. Bishop also married into the House of Kamehameha, which down the line gave him ownership of a vast amount of former crown lands. Bishop tried to convince King Lunalilo to cede Pearl Harbor to the United States in 1872, but the king died before Bishop could succeed in talking the king into giving the land to the Americans. And what happened next began the ultimate downfall of the independent country of Hawaii. In the election after Lunalilo's death, the choice had been between Queen Emma Rooke, the widow of the deceased Kamehameha IV, and, uh, There's too many of these guys. Uh, And David Kalakaua. Queen Emma, however, refused to give up without a fight and had her followers start a riot in Honolulu, attacking the Hawaiian legislature in what was called the Honolulu Courthouse Riot. And because Hawaii had no standing army and the local police refused to act, uh, in an act of desperation, uh, uh, King, King David then asked for american troops to crack down on the riot from this position of weakness the new king was then forced to cede pearl harbor to the united states navy in the following years the effects of the reciprocity treaty you know the whole treaty where the sugar planters could import sugars without import taxes into the united states came into full effect turbocharging the hawaiian sugar industry and making the sugar planters even more filthy stinking rich than they already were When the king refused to continue playing along, the American planters and military uh, interests organized a series of rebellions which ended in 1887 with a so-called Bayonet Constitution, in which King Kalakaua was forced to give up most of the powers of his position. The voting structure of the kingdom was also changed under this constitution, steep property requirements for voting were introduced, and all Asians were stripped of voting rights. After King Kalakaua died in 1891, his sister Liliuokalani ascended the throne. She was the first and last queen of the Hawaiian kingdom. She inherited a deeply, deeply troubled realm. She herself had been part of a previous attempt to overthrow the government and get rid of the bayonet constitution but to no avail. Right after ascending the throne, she began drafting a new constitution to you know, reinstate powers to the crown that the hawaiian king kings had in in the past in her autobiography she wrote that she received petitions from many of her native hawaiian subjects to get rid of the bayonet constitution and give control of the kingdom back to its original people when the foreign businessmen got wind of these developments they formed a quote-unquote committee of safety to plot the overthrow of the monarchy once and for all and to get the islands annexed by the united states This Committee of Safety then claimed an, quote-unquote, immediate threat to American life and property in a cry for assistance to the U.S. Navy that was then stationed at Pearl Harbor. And the U.S. Navy then posted American marines and sailors throughout Honolulu. Uh, The Queen chose to try and avoid the blood of her people shed uh, by these overwhelming forces and resigned, thus giving up Hawaiian sovereignty. Two years later, a counter-rebellion in uh, Queen Liliuokalani's name failed, resulting in the final dissolution of the exiled royal government and the imprisonment of the former queen. In 1898, the businessman's dreams finally came true and the Hawaiian Islands were officially annexed as a U.S. territory by President William McKinley, who wanted to secure Pearl Harbor as a base uh, in the Spanish-American War. Meanwhile, native Hawaiian culture was aggressively suppressed, following the overthrow of the monarchy, teaching and speaking of the Hawaiian language by native children uh, was, you know, basically always punished, schools were only allowed to teach in English, and this only changed back in the 1980s after decades of lobbying to save the native tongue of the islands from extinction. What happened in the period after annexation was that Native Hawaiians became increasingly pushed out of their own lands, a process that is still continuing today, actually. To find paid work, many Hawaiians then went to the continental United States, and that transfer of workers had a bunch of lasting, unintended consequences. The Hawaiians introduced Hawaiian music to Americans and started a musical fad in the 1920s. Hawaiian music would have a deep and lasting impact on American music at large. The steel guitar staple twang of country and Western music that had its beginning with Hawaiian music being brought into the United States after annexation. And this leads me to one closing anecdote accompanied by lawnmowers. Hawaiian guitars and Hawaiian music bear the traces of the islands being at the crosswinds of the world. In the late 1890s, British Lord Vancouver gifted King Kamehameha the Great a herd of cattle the king liked these funny animals so much he put a kapu on them so like a taboo so they couldn't be interfered with in any way by commoners making them literally sacred cows the cattle multiplied multiplied wide wildly on the big islands and became sacred pests that ate everything grass including people's houses after the dissolution of the kapu system in 1819 by king Kamehameha ii something could finally be done about all these feral cows but nobody in Hawaii had, uh, knew how to deal with them. So the king imported a bunch of Mexican ranch hands to rendle the wayward bovines. And the ranch hands brought with them guitars they then left the Hawaiian natives with, who then taught themselves how to play, hence the lap-positioned way that you play a steel guitar. And that's why country and western steel guitars are played that way, by the way. One more thing. Hawaiian music also often includes, well, yodeling. And that too was something the Mexican ranch hands brought along with them. And why in the world do Mexican ranch hands yodel? Because they picked it up from German and Austrian immigrants to Mexico. Because the world has always been connected in much more direct ways than we commonly believe. Well, in order to loop back to my trademark downer ending, I should add that more native Hawaiians live off of the islands today than do live on them. Because due to foreigners buying up and annexing all the land and using it for tourism, agriculture, and shooting ranges for the American military, it's extremely difficult to live there now. It's extremely expensive to buy housing on Hawaii, especially for natives who tend to be underprivileged. And in that, they are just like most other folks who come from places that all kinds of other people who just have more money and power than the native-borns find super attractive to live at, victims of capitalism. Because, well, Hawaii may be paradise, but only for those who can't afford it. Because, you know, something, something, living in hell after all.
0: <laughs> Sebastian,
3: great to hear your voice. That's
0: really fantastic. I, did, I knew the connection between uh, German and Austrian and Mexican music. I did not know the connection between Mexican and Hawaiian music. That is absolutely outstanding.
3: That's Yeah, really... it's, kind of a, it's kind of a mind blow. Like musical histories, like musical and culinary histories are always these things where you're like, wait, how, how did that end up there? Yeah, I found out about
0: the German uh, influence on Mexican music because my girlfriend had a class at the Art Institute on ambiguity in art. And it sounds like one of the most fascinating classes ever, and I really wish I would yep. have sat in on it. Sebastian, thank you very much. Great to hear your voice again, and we'll be speaking to you next week. Oh, yeah. Take care. All right. Bye. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. Kat, what is this week's question from Hell for our listening audience?
1: This week's question from hell is, what are you going to do with all the coins you are hoarding?
0: What are you going to do with all the coins you are hoarding? That is going to, when we post it on Facebook, Discord, Twitter, uh, it's already up at our Patreon page. We'll be sharing it with an image that producer Richard Norwood took, uh, finding out when, how he found out that there is going to be, apparently, a coin shortage. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can just post it at our Twitter page when we post the question. Or you can uh, put it at our uh, Discord or Patreon page. Just email us at Chuck at com, But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing, as we always do, announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly Moment of Truth. Kat, what's Jeff talking about during this week's moment?
1: I actually am not sure. Oh, yeah,
0: he sent it to us, and I forgot. Did you... Um, uh, What was it?
1: I don't know if I got that email. Yeah,
0: it's my fault. All right, we'll tell people tomorrow. All right. (laughs) My painkillers are wearing off. So, Kat... Who are this week's upcoming guests here on This Is Hell?
1: Um, This week's upcoming guests, uh, we have Truth about or Truth Out board president Maya Shenwar returns to This Is Hell to discuss her recent article. Right wingers push death penalty reinstatement bills as part of hardline agenda. The same forces that are attacking abortion, trans health care, and racial justice are also pushing for more executions.
0: And when producer Dan Kugler uh, confirmed with Maya, I saw their back and forth, and apparently they're old friends. Who knew? Oh, cool. Very oh. weird. And who else is going to be on this week's show?
1: journalist Umar Farooq will be on to talk about his ProPublica investigation In Arizona water ruling, the Hopi tribe seeks limits on its future, or sees limits on its future. Arizona's unique method for awarding water to tribes was supposed to open up economic possibilities beyond farming for the Hopi tribe. Instead, the tribe says it has dashed their dreams of building a thriving homeland.
0: One of the weirdest things about that article is the copper mining company that has contaminated a lot of the aquifer and therefore the water that Hopi uh, have access to. That's actually a company that dates back to 18th century England, and they were an importer of plantation cotton. So apparently their business model is colonialism. Thanks to Kat Jarvanen for producing. Thanks to me for not mispronouncing Kat's first name. (laughs) I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Join us for our This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party, as well as the opening of this year's edition of This Is Art on Saturday, July 22nd at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. There's art, there's music, there's food, there's a raffle, and we have been getting some fantastic raffle prizes donated to the show. That's the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and opening of This Is Art, all happening on Saturday, July 22nd at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Making learning about evil fun since 1996.
3: This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor.